So I'm not Francisco Cabanas, otherwise known as Arctic Mine. Oh. And <laughs> one second. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to this month's coffee chat for the month of February 2019. We have a panel of people that are, uh, you know, very important to the Monero community here, and we're great to have you on here, Diego. Um, and several others are currently at TabCon down in Atlanta. So they might be popping in and out. They checked in with us right before, but no promises they'll be on for the coffee chat here because they still have conference obligations to speak to. But um, it's great that they were still able to check in with us. It's great that you're able to watch us today. Make sure to ask questions in the YouTube chat if you have them. We'll be sure to address them when we have time. Um, but of course, let's start off with introductions. So. I'm Justin. Hi, I'm at the University of Minnesota, and I do these coffee chats. I'm involved in the Monero Community Workgroup, and recently have started Breaking Monero and one episode of Breaking Zcash. We'll see if that goes anywhere. Um, so next, how about um, Artikman? Can you introduce yourself for everyone today, please? Sure. Um, I've been with the Monero Project since basically 2016 as a core team member, and I did some work before in uh, on the project, got involved in 2014. And right now, most of the, the kind of work that I do really has been related to scaling um, and work related to um, the, the, the adaptive block size limit, fees, etc., cetera, uh, which is kind of what I've been working with lately. And I'm on the call team. Excellent. Thanks for joining us, Arctic Mine. You certainly are one of the most active core team members that's able to join us almost every time. So it's great to have you on. Um, Howard, can you introduce yourself, please? Hey, uh, you might know me as HYC. Uh, I started working with uh, Monero end of 2015, working on the database code. Uh, that's kind of been specialization so far, but I also work on uh, mining code and anything else that comes up. Thank you, Howard. It's great to have you on. Um, and again, if you have any questions related to you know, the big hot topic right now related to, to mining, make sure you get those in. You might be able to answer them in, in a decent amount of explainable detail. Um, and then last but not least, Need Money 90. Thanks for joining us. Hey. Um, I've been in the community for a couple of years. I'm a moderator and uh, I have my fingers in basically every part of the community's interactions. Um, and I currently run a market-making fund. So, yeah, nice to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So I wanted to kick things off with a discussion about a recent coin setter piece. Um, so they recently posted a piece called, We Must Protect Our Ability to Transact Privately Online. And it goes through the history of cash, the importance of privacy, in a transaction-based system. Did anyone here get a chance to read that? <laughs> Saw it go by. Saw it go by. Um, so yeah, so Brandon Goodell, um, who is, uh, you might know him as Surrey Nother from the Monero Research Lab, he had a part at helping put this together. And I think it's generally a pretty good read. It's not Monero-specific, of course, but it essentially makes the case for Monero. So I think it's it's certainly worth a, it's, um, if you have a chance. Arctic Mind, did you want to say something? Yeah, I've actually spent a fair amount of time reading this, um, and and the article, and it really addresses a lot of very interesting things. 
Um, what are the common misconceptions when we talk about fiat in, in, the, in the crypto world? It, we tend to lump electronic fiat and cash fiat into one a lot. And, that, and they're two very different things. And the war on cash is, in many ways, cash is a complement to Monero from the, from the uh, um, in-person transaction, while Monero really comes in and shines far stronger in things where you can't be person to person. So it's a digital form. And this is a, a distinction that's commonly uh, misconception, not made. I think it hits the nail on the head on a lot of things. Um, I, uh, I don't think it goes a lot into the technology that drives, that drives this. But quite honestly, I'm old enough to remember when cash was king. And when you weren't discriminated against if you were a teenager, because everybody was using cash, and nobody was using these debit cards and credit cards, and, and nobody was using um, all this digital stuff, which basically is great in some areas, but it fails in a lot of cases. You can't give money to a poor person, for example, with a, with a debit card. That's a major thing. I'll leave you with that. So I think, the article, I think the article hits it right on the head. Yeah, I, I definitely encourage everyone. I linked it in the chat there. So if you have not read it yet, I, I highly encourage you to. I think it really makes a good case um, for why we need to maintain a lot of properties as we transition to a digital system and why we need to support projects that are, are working towards this end goal. Um, any other comments just on that sort of even general topic about um, like Monero's purpose is not necessarily for like, like the Monero's ultimate purpose is to help transition the same properties we have of money to a digital system. Is there anyone that sort of disagrees with that or has a different take on that? Okay. No one? No one? Yeah, okay. Um, I would argue that we needed money 25 years ago because we started using e-commerce uh, in the 1990s and e-commerce was only driven by proprietary systems, uh, permission systems. Um, so I don't think it's going to transition. I mean, I, 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 I still see a role for cash in day-to-day -day -day transactions and, and um, in-person transactions. I think it's, an, it's to meet a need that has been in place for a quarter century that hasn't really been met of digital payments that are permissionless online. So I, I, I kind of think a bit of a different perspective of that, although I agree with the perspective. It's, yeah, we need a Monero 25 years ago, anyway. Um, Arctic Mine, Arctic Mine. Hi, is there something wrong with your something mic? Wrong. You're clipping really you're clipping bad. Like, it's very bad. difficult like, to hear what you're saying. Maybe, maybe I'm too far away. That's the reason. Okay. Is that better? Uh, not really. Uh, not it's, really. It's, like, it's like clipping hard. Clipping hard. Okay, it's so over. Uh, let me I mean, see if I can do this. YouTube. Okay. Import. Because if I cut it down, it should actually help. Is that better? I don't know. I'm not sure what the issue is. I might just generally be a, an old mic or, or something. It's, it's hard to really tell what the situation is. Um, 
है Yeah, if you look at the the tweet that I actually um, retweeted at you, that spells it out exactly in those terms. It was. Um, yep, I shared it in chat. Okay. So basically, you know, the experience of Ripple being uh, "quote unquote" adopted by Swift, you know, uh, in reality. You know, there was no actual adoption, and uh, and the test deployment, you know, grew in complexity because nobody wanted to have their uh, their trading accounts balances publicly known. Yep, interesting. I think that um, I think this would become more realized, at least among perhaps among the business community as they're sort of de devising these systems and get beyond the sort of um, here's a minimum viable product phase where they're just trying to get a, a test up and running. Once they start trying to actually use any of these systems, I hope that they'll realize there's just a shortfall there they need to correct. Sure. Okay, so um, and related to other news that happened in Monero in the past few weeks, um, Monero was added to Exodus Eden, which is the, like, a, it's a multi-wallet desktop wallet, and Eden is their sort of beta testing version. So you can currently use Monero there. It's pretty simple to use. It uses a My Monero type uh, view key model where it's, it's not a, a full client in the way that... Um, old desktop client normally is, but it, it, it's good for people who prioritize convenience, of course. And then um, another development, uh, Monero's blockchain pruning mechanism was recently merged into the main repo, so pruning is now an available option for nodes, and I, I created a blog post about this that has also been merged. We're just waiting on the website to be updated so this, this post can be more widely shared with everybody. But that's really interesting. Um, bullet proofs are getting even faster um, with with the most recent updates and beyond that users will be able to run pruned nodes which aren't as good as running full nodes but they're better than using remote nodes so hopefully that will help individuals who have low power devices be more likely to run nodes compared to just using someone else's copy of the node 
it. So that certainly will help under certain use cases, perhaps if you're using it on your phone or whatever you're doing. Howard, you, you've run nodes on your phone before, right? Run what? Say again? Nodes on your phone before? Oh, yeah, still do. Okay. Are there, how much bandwidth does that use? Uh, well, it can use a lot, but um, I've got an unlimited data plan, so I don't worry about that. Mo mostly I worry about battery life. And um, so right now, for example, I run the node with only four peers instead of the default eight. Okay. And the mobile phone network has me like double netted, so I can't get any inbound connections. So basically, yeah, I've got four peer connections and that's it. So that keeps bandwidth under control. You can't run an, an open Monero node on your phone. <laughs> I, I can't, you know, I would, I would love to try, but it hasn't worked out. Yeah, that's funny. Um, I'm in a situ similar situation here in my apartment where I can't open anything up. <laughs> Arctic Mind, do you have something? Well, I run um, nodes regularly off my laptop, which I then tether off the phone. And I, I run the same thing at Harvard. It says you can't open the port. It's all blocked. Uh, pretty well, any kind of Wi-Fi, you know, public Wi-Fi, et cetera, you get that scenario where it's firewalled. Um, but I end up balancing uh, bandwidth between using, especially when I'm traveling, between my data and free Wi-Fi. And I effectively can maintain a closed full Monero node that means one without the port open without a problem. Um, but it's kind of like a bit of a, uh, a balance sort of thing. But I run it on a laptop. But forget about opening the node. <laughs> None of them let you do that. Yep, exactly. Um, other, other related news, um, Benjamin Earl Turner, who is, is a rapper, released a, a recent video called Ja Rule that featured Monero several times during the music video. And he actually went on Monero Talk. So if you're interested in learning more about how this one individual sort of found Monero and thinks it's a good symbolistic representation about some of the ideals he really supports and he wanted to really get across in his, his song, um, you can check. I highly recommend checking out the video and also uh, the Monero Talk episode where he even mentions Cake Wallet sort of just out of his own volition. He just brought it up. So he's at least used it before, I hope. Um, <laughs> um, so it's, it's pretty interesting when when you have others that take Monero and sort of apply it in a concept that is outside of the bounds of what we're sort of dealing with the day-to-day. -day, that someone felt that it was a powerful enough symbol for them to include in, in the arts that they're, that they're making. So it's pretty interesting. Um, so I had a question about Colbury come in. I think I'll come back to that in a little bit later, um, but we can certainly get to that. Um, other brief related news I really want to cover. So um, I was in New York last weekend. We had a, um, I had a, a meetup that was sponsored by Cake Wallet and Monero Talk there um, in, in New York at a co-working space. There is a recording on Monero Talk. It's, it's a little difficult to watch, but it still shows the people who were there and covered what I, what I spoke about. Um, that was really useful. Uh, recently, I've been working on Breaking Monero, which is a series that looks at the privacy and security limitations. So we're out with episode seven, remote nodes, episode eight, timing attacks, and episode nine will be out on Monday. This is a, a 
a really important episode to deal on poisoned outputs or the EAE attack or the MAC attack or all those different names. So expect that out on Monday. And then we also had the, the breaking Zcash episode um, that we came out. Now, we normally want to keep the discussion focused on Monero, and I think we certainly still will do that. But Zcash had some interesting developments this week where they had a, a counterfeiting vulnerability that they disclosed. And Monero has had counterfeiting vulnerabilities in the past that we've disclosed. So I think it's important to sort of talk a little bit about um, this and the, the sort of difficulties with finding these counterfeiting vulnerabilities with privacy cryptocurrencies. Um, in Zcash's case, it was the issue with Sprout. In Monero's case, it was an issue with some of the key images and some other past issues. So um, I think if people have questions on sort of what Monero does with, with uh, counterfeiting and the vulnerability response process, I think that'd be something that would be good to cover here. Um, Arctic Mine, can you give a brief overview about what Monero did in the past with Monero's um, pre previous counterfeiting bug and how we could and what some of the differences are compared to what you're, we've seen in the past few week, uh, past week. Well, the, the 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 process of the disclosure of the vulnerability is really interesting because it was discovered within the Monero community, and, and there was a very small group of people that were aware of it, which was basically the core team, some um, key developers. And so I think the disclosure process was complicated by the fact that it affected every crypto node coin. So there was a, a process of one patching Monero and then hiding this so that you wouldn't give it away and then responsibly disclosing to all the other crypto nodes so that they could patch before it went public. So it's like a two-stage complexity because we had, you know, we couldn't just say, well, let's fix Monero and then leave everybody else right out in the open. And so there was, um, the, the patch was put in place. It was hidden, obfuscated in the code, which is, I can talk about that. And then we disclosed to all of the other cryptos. And apparently after the disclosure, Bitcoin got attacked. Uh, so there's some question of whether there was a leak in that, uh, uh, at that point within them. And so that was kind of the process of disclosure, I think, which was really, really interesting. The technical details, um, I believe, are on getmonero.org. If you actually look at the, the specific, uh, it was um, to do, if I remember correctly, if, you know, that's not my area of expertise in the project, so I'm going to qualify this. But that there were, very, there were multiple points on the curve, on the um, encryption curve. And if you hit another one, you could actually create some uh, counterfeiting. Now, Monero didn't have that attack occur, uh, and it was patched. But like I said, my, to my understanding, it was uh, Bitcoin was attacked with it. Yeah, that's about how I remember it. Do you, so one question I have, and I don't, I know that around. So in January, there was a Monero hard fork. This is this is in January 2017. There was a Monero hard fork that added Ring CT, and then there was another hard fork, I believe, in April. It was it was around April, if it wasn't April, that added this this fix, and that way we knew that it was patched, um, and it also changed an important part of Monero's. Adaptive block size to deal with the larger ring CTP transactions. Do you think that Monero would have had this hard fork 
no matter what, or was this hard fork specifically added for this purpose? Um, if, if you're aware of that process. Yes, I am. I mean, the when WinCT came in, it was too big for the um, existing block size, um, minimum block size limit of 60,000 bytes. So we had to increase that to 300,000. So that's something that had to happen. Uh, and what happened is that the this became sort of a cover for the vulnerability uh, patch. So we, we kind of hit it because we did it at the same time. But it was definitely because of the fact that we were patching Monero and also um, trying to hide it so that we could protect the other crypto nodes. Um, the, 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 it was sort of the cover, the, the, the um, block size change actually became part of the cover for this. Now, those folks would have had to happen regardless because of the, the, the block size wouldn't really work. The scaling works, uh, block size didn't work with the ratio of uh, the transaction to the uh, minimum, like 15 kilobytes, sorry, a 13 kilobyte transaction and 60 uh, kilobyte uh, block size. The fees were being used way too high. So, so that had to happen to accommodate Ring CT. Um, so that those folks had to happen regardless, but it was a good cover for this particular problem. Yeah, certainly. If you if we already needed the hard fork, so to speak, to, to change the block size, then people probably wouldn't really think that there's something else in there too. So, um, pretty interesting. Okay. Um, so, in regards to, I, I have like two big discussions slated that I think are are well strong importance to the Monero community around this time. The first one is the um, idea of the Monero Big Bang attack. And, and by this, it's referring to the ability for individuals to create a large number of transactions within Monero in order to inflate the block size. Monero has an adaptive block size, so the blocks will grow as demand grows. And the concern is that it's potentially too simple currently for an attacker to fill these blocks and make um, a big hindrance to the Monero network, of course. So, Arctic Mike, can you give like the the the, bait, uh, the background knowledge about sort of the initial discovery? You said that you were were heavily involved in understanding these vulnerabilities early in Monero's history, and then others can chime in as we go more in depth about what the what recent research is finding and what it's, what it's, uh, the ultimate changes are going forward. Okay. I mean, basically, the Big Bang attack is where you would go in and generate a lot of spam to bloat the block size. And then you're, you're attacking the penalty. And essentially, and, then, and there's various ways to look at it, depending on whether the miners are cooperating or not, um, the cost is comparable or slightly higher than that of a 51% attack. Part of the issue that happened, now the, the, I actually described a similar attack back in 2016, so this is not that new in that respect, but I think the, the awareness of this was triggered by the fact that we had a drop in the price of Monero, so now attacking Monero in this respect is more cheaper. That was one factor. Uh, there's also some questions of how you estimate it. It's about a factor of four difference. In, in, if you just, the minimum penalty doesn't actually support the attack, although it was presented that way, because what happens is a miner basically doesn't increase the block size and just takes half the spam and collects the money. So the spammer needs uh, a faster rate than that. 
to do the maximum attack, you actually have to run it. It's the minus an outcrop to, to go to the maximum penalty. It's actually four times the block reward. So it's not a cheap attack to run. The problem is, and I think what a lot of the concerns in the community, is that with the drop in price of Monero, now it sort of looked a lot more viable. Uh, and, and there's various debates, it became a lot more cost effective. But I, I would caution that this is more expensive than a 51%. So if you have a 51% you can't recover from, that would be the most cost effective way to go about this rather than this, this type of attack. So I, I've got to caution this because this is important to, to, to recognize. That reality hasn't changed. What we have done is basically, and this is what I've been working on, is we, you can basically mitigate this attack very effectively by increasing its cost. And what you do is instead of having one um, uh, rate, the, 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 the adaptive block size can go really, really fast in the short term, which is what led to the concern. And that's great if you have a, a short-term burst, such as, for example, you would have at the, at the Christmas season where, you know, you want to, have a 10 or 20-fold or 30-fold increase in transaction levels. Visas numbers actually are, are actually quite high. They go from about like 2,000 transactions a second to about like 40 to 50,000, a matter of uh, a few weeks. So you have the ability to do this ramp up, but you do need to sustain the ramp up in order to allow one to scale properly. And so what we did is we created another long-term limit, which is very slow and gradual, and effectively caps it. So that what happens is if you have a fast ramp up, you will hit a cap that lasts for roughly uh, 50,000 um, uh, blocks. So there's a, say, a temporary cap in a fast ramp up, and then you have a slow rate of growth that would accommodate reasonable long-term growth in the, in the blockchain. And balancing that, and effectively what this does is it drastically increases the cost of the attack. So it prices it, I think, right out of the equation, B-sub-B, 51%. Uh, and that's kind of what it's been, well, in fact, when I work with, with uh, Sarang and with Monero Mu, and, and specifically to get this sorted out so we can get it into the code, um, and you essentially, you know, patch this attack effectively by doing that. Um, there's a lot of different ways you can do this. I mean, there's a different alternatives. So this is definitely not the end of the all. Um, there may be more efficient ways of doing the dual medium thing uh, mathematically. So that could be a very much an area for research. But the long and short of it is it's just priced right out of the range of the 51% um, attack range as a result of this. But I do caution, a 51% attack is comparable in cost. And, and so I have to caution that. Um, so I think we just priced this thing out of the market, basically. So is there any questions on this or comments or? When hard cap. <laughs> Sorry, that was obviously a stupid comment. Um, so, no, it was, it was a lot of great context. So um, I don't know if you've been following that Howard or Need Money 90. Um, have you, either of you been following um, just the adaptive block size changes and developments? I've been watching some of the discussion on the research channel, but uh, no, I haven't been participating now. Yeah, I think this is Arctic Mines baby. <laughs> yeah. Which is a bit unfortunate because one of the things that I find that I'd really like to see in the community is, is more learning about this particular aspect of Monero. It is not something that 
a lot of people in the community have looked at. Um, it is a very critical component. And quite interestingly enough, it actually makes Monero extraordinarily competitive. Even putting aside the entire um, fungibility aspect with coins such as pretty well all the other um, open blockchain coins. You know, um, but it, yeah, it is something that I've spent a lot of time on it. And I really would be great for a lot of people in the community to inform themselves on this, uh, to try to understand it, because it makes it very different from Bitcoin. Uh, fees are fundamentally different from economics on the Bitcoin blockchain and in Bitcoin like chains. There is a tax that you can do on Bitcoin that you can't do on Monero because of this uh, adaptive block size limit. Uh, so it does also open some vulnerabilities to the fast attacks that we're talking about. Um, it is an aspect of the project that I think it'd be really nice to see a lot more knowledge and involvement from the community. Excellent. So if there's no other questions on this, we can move on to, I know the big discussion that probably everyone's uh, watching this for it is Monero's uh, current mining network state. So Monero has, to give a little bit of context, right? Monero has currently adopted uh, a policy that every six months with the current um, network upgrades that it has scheduled every six months, it will include a, a change, often a small change, to its mining algorithm such that if anyone had developed custom hardware to mine on the old algorithm, that it would hopefully render this, this hardware unusable going forward. And there, there's a million sort of considerations here, and I know that this is generally a very heated topic. There are many who feel that ASICs are inevitable, and I think most people agree that long-term ASICs certainly are inevitable, but um, there's a lot of there's a lot of disagreement even in the short term how we, we deal with, with ASICs, and whether we embrace them, whether we postpone them, whether we, we say that even long-term we have no interest with them, and, and other components about like the ethos about what do we really want Monero miners to look like? So there's a, there's a ton of discussion here, both technical and political. And so um, I, I know that if individuals have questions, make sure you, you send them to us so that we can really discuss these here. But recently, um, this has become a large topic of news because Monero's hash rate has increased significantly over the past few weeks, past few months. And uh, many were giving different speculations. Why would this happen if the price was decreasing, right? The price was increasing. Ideally, you should see more hash power come on to, to fill this demand. But if hardware, as we know it from consumer-grade equipment, hasn't changed significantly over the past few months, and the price has been decreasing slowly as a general trend, why is the hash rate increasing significantly? And there, there are several people that had different takes on this. Um, however, recently, one person looked at the Monero nonce data from mine blocks. And it's by their estimation that about 85% of the Monero network is currently um, uh, is currently mined by ASICs that were developed for Monero. And they, they give some assumption. Again, this isn't like a necessarily pure truth, but it, it's an assumption based off the information they were presented and some in, information that they received from others based off 
what likely hash rates these ASICs would provide. So I want to open this discussion here. Um, how about with you first, uh, Need Money 90, just to give your thoughts about like what the situation is and, and really your sort of perspective on it. Because I know a lot of people have different perspectives on this issue and also have different takeaways from how important it is. Uh, this is on the ASIC mining? Sorry, I was uh, I stepped away for a second. Yes, this is on ASIC mining. Yeah, um, so I, I can sympathize with the perspectives that people want to um, move towards an environment where we're effectively just spending pure energy, um, and that would it mean commodification of ASICs. Unfortunately, we're not really in that kind of environment right now, um, and they promote unwanted centralization. It, it really is uh, a, a complicated situation, and... I, I have seen some speculation that Monero can follow something like, uh, I think what Grin is doing, where we have one part of the algorithm that's ASIC resistant, um, and then we slowly transition to an ASIC uh, part of the algorithm where, say, 90% of the block rewards go to the ASIC resistant one, and the ASICs get 10%, and then slowly the percentage increases to incentivize their creation. Um, I mean, I... I it's a, it's a very difficult problem, and I'm not sure that there even is an answer to the to it. It's complicated. To give a little bit more background on the like dual mining, um, I, I know within the Zcash community they they proposed this and nearly went forward with it. They just gave it the name Harmony Mining, where they would have one ASIC friendly algorithm and one algorithm that was supposed to not be ASIC friendly. And I know that they certainly fell into a lot of uh, critical implementation issues and they decided not to move forward with it. But it's certainly something that many people in the community are, are toying with as a way to help balance some of these, some of these different, different uh, mining groups and sort of these different incentives here. There's a lot of interesting work that's being done on, I think it's RandomX now. Um, not random JS anymore, but uh, even then, I'm not sure if there there even can be a silver bullet to the issue of specialized hardware versus general purpose hardware. Like I, I suspect it may be impossible, like an intractable problem in the long run for an actual decentralized cryptocurrency. But we'll we'll see, I guess. So uh, Howard, that's your cue. <laughs> Yeah, I've got some more definite opinions on all of this topic, I suppose. You have to say. <laughs> um, okay, let's see. First of all, you know, I was just looking at the network status right now. So we're, we're looking at about 870 mega hashes per second. Uh, a few weeks ago, it was down at like 350. So at the most, we're seeing 60% uh, new hash rate which could all be ASICs, all right? Um, I think 85% estimate is way over, is overestimating, you know? Uh, it's not like, uh, it's not like these new ASICs have already driven out 50% of the traditional miners in, in the span of three weeks, that hasn't happened. So first of all, that's the scope of the impact that we're seeing. Um, now, the question of, you know, gosh, if ASICs were ubiquitous, then decentralization would be perfect. And uh, I mean, that, that's kind of a, an interesting position, but 
you know, I don't see that being realistic unless ASICs are usefully embedded in devices that we already buy, for example, mobile phones, right? You know, the, the average consumer isn't going to wake up one day and say, gosh, I'm going to go down to the store and a mining ASIC. You know, even if they're like in every freaking grocery store and convenience store around the world, it's not the kind of a product that people think about buying. So, you know, even if there's multiple manufacturers and they're readily available, you know, which is not the case today, even if that were true, you know, that's not going to decentralize or democratize the mining, right? Uh, and then the other question about, you know, can we actually build something that's ASIC resistant? And to me, the answer is obviously yes, right? Because the very nature of an ASIC is to be special function, all right? Uh, and, and what we're going for, say, in random X is to be general purpose, is to utilize the components of a general purpose CPU, okay? If... If it were possible to write an ASIC, to design an ASIC that would run every general purpose program, then you know these guys would put Intel and AMD out of business. They're not going to do that. You know they don't have the resource budgets, the the uh, research and development expertise. You know and and ultimately they are oriented towards single function circuits. That that's what their strength is. And that's not what the strength of a CPU is. And that's, you know, so we're trying to leverage what a CPU can do because that's really the opposite of what an ASIC can do. I think your point in regards to people not just going to their local convenience store and picking up an ASIC, I think that, I think that's pretty realistic, actually, that they would not do that because this is, Mining is really supposed to be boring long-term, I think. Like, it's just something that just sort of happens as a state of network security. Like, you're not going to be like, ooh, let me pick up my new shiny ASIC from, from the store. But, like, ideally, it shouldn't be like that. So I, I sort of agree with your, your point there that if they are commoditized, they're also not likely to be something that people would purchase as, like, an independent product. Right. Now, you know, if, if it turns out that these ASICs are useful for other things and useful enough that they start getting embedded in CPUs, you know, that's a different story. Like uh, AES encryption became so important that, you know, chip makers had to start putting AES accelerators into their CPUs. Um, you know, so it could turn out that, uh, you know, there'll be some other functional circuit that becomes equally important and that every, CPU uh, incorporates it. And then, you know, everybody will have them without even thinking about it. But we're so far away from that happening. So what are some of the arguments in terms of just designing, uh, designing an algorithm that takes advantage of these things that are already incorporated in normal hardware? Is there anything like, um, like AES encryption somehow try and work the way into Monero's algorithm? Well, okay. You know, if you think about uh, a classical ASIC, all right, it is 
a, I mean, you think about it as a finite state machine. Okay. It's, it's, uh, it's operation is purely mechanical. You know, um, it might have a clock that's ticking off states, but an input goes in and it goes from step one to step two to step three and so on. And an output comes out the other end. It's not making a lot of decisions in middle. Okay. Um, when we start looking at, you know, how to make uh, a mining algorithm that's more CPU oriented, you know, we want to have <clears throat> a changing list of instructions so that, you know, you can't just hard code one sequence of steps and, and be done with the job, right? We want the set of instructions to change all the time because CPUs are designed to execute any sequence of instructions, right? So they're designed to handle the most general possible set of instructions, and an ASIC is designed to only execute a single set of instructions. Uh, so um, when you look at, you know, what makes a CPU able to do its job? Well, it has a bunch of components that an ASIC would never have. It's got an instru instruction fetcher, it's got a decoder, you know, it's got dispatchers and all of these other elements that an ASIC would never have ordinarily. So when you start saying uh, you want to build an ASIC that can, uh, that can also perform this new, say, random X algorithm, it's going to need to add all of these modules that a CPU always has that an ASIC never had before. Did that answer the question or did I go off in a different direction? No, I, I think it answered it. Arctic Mind, did you have something you wanted to chime in and say? You're muted, you muted yourself. <laughs> I am muted and muted myself, there we go. Um, <clears throat> a couple of things that I'd like to mention. The first is the thread and the ASIC is essentially its proprietary. Um, that's what makes it monopolistic, um, and that's what makes it um, a threat. I mean, this is the argument of commoditization is can we make it sort of generic so that it's not proprietary, and, and whether that's possible, it's, it's an entirely separate question. One issue that I would raise with this, and I realize this, this can be very controversial, so I'm, I'm just positioning this, is that we could look at um, copyright licensing changes with respect to the mining code to put a strong copy left in there. It's not a simple thing to do, but it could be done. And the idea would be then to create a situation if you have a decentralized contribution network, which we do, where whoever decides to build proprietary hardware based on that code is exposed to legal liability from random multiple sources at the same time, because now you have decentralized litigation, basically. Um, any one of the contributors could sue essentially for copyright infringement. So, I mean, that's one possibility is to, to, to harden the thing by uh, changing the license. This is controversial because a lot of people feel that it has to be a BSD type license, a very um, permissive license. And there are valid reasons for that too. So I'm not trying to be, but just simply saying, you know, you're throwing out, there is another weapon you could throw at the ASIC battle, which is licensing, which I think has not really been discussed at all. 
But I, I agree with a lot of Howard's assessment. I mean, essentially, you can design something that is um, random or changes enough to keep these people, keep these things off balance uh, and maintain, and the objective being to create something that's commoditized. Um, one thing I would mention is, in theory, you could, uh, people would go to a store to buy a heater. So you could actually have commoditized ASIC heaters that produce heat in the winter and people could use for mining that they would go to the store and buy. Um, the, the whole economics of uh, proof-of-work mining historically tends to eliminate or not consider the cost and or value of the heat produced in the process. Uh, we just look at the energy consumption versus the cost of the currency, but we're not asking the question, okay, what about the heat? Is it, what, is it a, a waste product to be getting rid of, or is it something valuable? that you want to use to, to heat your home, for example. And my sort of experience on this is that to a small to a degree, the heat is valuable. And when it gets too centralized, then it becomes a waste product. So if you have your apartment or your home or whatever, and you have a room that's cold, then it's cost effective for you to mine in order to keep that room warm. But once you've got the room warm, then it's no longer cost effective. There's some other arguments of solar panels to where you have excess energy available in the summer, which is valuable in a decentralized position, but not valuable in a centralized position. You can't sell it back to the grid, for example. So, so I think the economics and mining that we have to sort of broaden the issue than just, than just look at that. Um, so those are the kind of the two things I'll throw into this debate. I mean, A, can you change the license to sort of keep the ASIC manufacturers even more of balance, because now you're open sourcing their ASICs, basically. Uh, and also, the question of the cost of the heat or the value of the heat. Yeah, I think some pretty interesting points there from different perspectives. Now, um, in regards to the first one about a license situation, um, you can try and license it, but uh, we're in a current state now where we're sort of assuming that a lot of the Monero network is, is, is controlled by ASICs, but we don't know of what entity is mining these. We don't really, at least, it's not known to the wider community really who is who is the person that's developing all this hardware. So how do you think that a sort of legal liability threat is, is really reliable in this case where anyone can show up in line without us knowing who this entity is? No. Uh, as a standalone, no. As a complement, it can be helpful. Um, I think the situation, because basically you want to, uh, this threatens the sort of open, but uh, the open, the people that are open about it are centralizing. Um, so, so it's just a tr another tool in the quiver. And I, and I would, and I would emphasize, this is, I think, something that's going to take more than one approach to deal with the, the, the centralizing threat. I don't think it's a single one solution, at least at this point. Um, right now, I mean, what we're doing of kind of randomly changing the a proof of work on, on subsequent forks is a solution. I think the kind of um, software approaches that, so that Howard is proposing uh, make a lot of sense uh, as a way. I'm simply saying that we may want to have a more multifaceted uh, solution where you just don't have one uh, angle of attack. Um, but yes, I do agree that uh, if you have a especially hostile attacker, the, the creating this liability is it's an issue. Now, one thing that, that what I was referring to can help with, which can also be a threat, is uh, cloud mining. 
where somebody uh, gets up a whole bunch of maybe GPUs or whatever and rents the mining out, that can also be a very strong centralizing threat because that cloud miner actually controls once you give the money to the miner, you can't just pull it back. If you're, if you're uh, hashing in a pool, you can say, well, that pool is attacking the network, so I'm going to take my hash rate somewhere else. If you give money to someone to cloud mine, that is, um, they have control now. Now, one interesting thing about it, and again, there's a legal argument against these, is that they effectively are selling a security. So there is uh, a legal attack against the cloud mine because they're basically selling um, uh, a security. So that gives us a, a legal angle from there. But I'm just saying that there are threats that can be mitigated with legal issues and legal threats, even in a decentralized network. Um, so it is an angle that we can look at. That's basically, but rather than simply saying as a, a standalone, no. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Thanks for bringing in those different perspectives and I think it's important to have a good understanding at least of what number of options really are available on the at least on the table because I know that it, it is generally a complex topic and we don't really have a great answer here of how, how to purposely do things so um, I suppose one last question for everyone here do how concerned are people currently with the state of Monero's mining network do we we, we know that something is up based off how the nonces are, are, are being recorded. So is, does that mean that we need to be really concerned about the actual security of Monero's network, or are we generally think, for the most part, we should still be okay? And this can go to whoever chimes up first, who has the strongest opinion. Well, the security has uh, a bunch of different meanings, right? Um, the privacy of the network is not being threatened. Um, now, the validity of transactions, you know, I suppose we could be exposed to a rollback attack at some point down the road. So there's, you know, that's that's where the, the threat may be. And do you think that's a likely occurrence? Do you think it's, it's a, a rare occurrence? What's your general take there? <laughs> Uh, no idea. Arctic mine? Well, my thought is, is that um, it's a complex problem from the attacker's perspective also because they don't know what on earth the community is going to do. I mean, this is one of the things that happened with the last attack. I mean, right now there is code in the pipeline that could, that could get merged. It's not clear when it's going to get merged from the perspective of, of an attacker. Uh, it's unclear what's going to happen like two to three months. Are we going to find the need for some other tweak or some other change? And then we're going to add another fork in there. So I think there's enough uncertainty being created by the community that keeps these people off balance. That's what's happened at this point in time. Uh, but it's a dynamic situation. So we're kind of seeing a threat and responding to it, keeping them off balance. Um, I am a bit more concerned mainly because of the threats that have generally been made against other coins. And I'm very specific about this. I, I When I read the, the threats that were made by Sharkpool and um, Bitcoin SV, I mean, ironically, they, they, they threatened everybody but Monero. Um, and 
And that to me is an eye opener. I mean, of the kind of things that people are thinking of doing. Um, and it had an impact on the market. I mean, the market crashed uh, a good uh, 50%, 60% as a result of some of this, this kind of stuff. Um, so, yes, there's a threat out there. Um, I'm not sure who it is. I'm not even sure if it is related to this broad-based threat through chalk pool uh, against every other coin. And people are getting the ASICs ready to attack Monero. Um, but I also think there are enough countermeasures dynamically happening in the community to mitigate the threat. So we're sort of in a dynamic balance right now. That's why I would see it. So I'm not worried, but I'm not worried because of all the stuff that's going on and, and, and not only what it does, all these changes, but the uncertainty it creates for the attacker. Thanks. Need money? Do you have an opinion on this? I'm kind of worried about the hash rate, but I also recognize that these people are economically rational um, because otherwise they wouldn't have been building specialized hardware. I've, I've heard some rumors uh, that the hardware right now isn't ASICs or isn't FPGAs and it's instead ASICs somewhere around like a couple generations old tech. Um, I believe the numbers that I heard were like 65 nanometers. Don't quote me on that. Um, so it's it's nowhere near current tech, but more energy efficient than our current hardware. But if if they're economically rational, they they did this to make a profit. They're going to want to go and extend it for as long as possible. I don't see why there's, I mean, I can see why there's a ton of urgency, but I I don't think that it's as big of a deal as a lot of people are making it out to be. Just because the most profitable thing for these people is not to crash the price of the network and the mining. Okay, thank you. Are there any last topics that we need to cover where we're getting into the hour of mark here? Any last things you want to cover in this coffee chat here? Now is your last one. Nothing? Okay. So we had one question that came in that I made that I promised I'd make sure to answer. It was on the state of Colbury. And honestly, the short answer is no one really knows what the state of Covery is, but ultimately the most likely set of circumstances is that Covery is not maintained anymore. That's just kind of the most likely truth, the most likely result that's gonna come out of this. So as a result, it doesn't mean though that Monero is, is not going to use Tor or I2P. Recently, uh, the functionality for Monero to support SOCs has been merged, um, so that way Monero can support Tor and I2P. And actually, some of the Monero contributors have done a really awesome job at making sure that uh, I2P will work to the best extent possible. So um, what most likely that means is that after the next upgrade, users will have the option to, uh, at least in, for the update that's coming up, they can manually configure to use I2P um, for, for broadcasting the transactions or even trying to sync with other wallets and other sort of behaviors. And then I think in the fall of 2019, we'll be looking for how to implement it more directly so that a large portion of the Monero ecosystem is sort of using this type of framework by default. So even though Colbury likely will not see any more development in the future, um, I can't certainly say that it won't. It's an open source project. Theoretically, people can still make changes to it. But Ultimately, I think uh, the, the large opinion is that it likely will not receive much development going forward in the future. 
Okay. So with that, thank you so much, HYC, Arctic Mine, and Need Money 90 for joining me today for the uh, this month's coffee chat. I know that others who are at TabCon, uh, they, they, of course, popped in and they said hi. So it's, it's great to see them. Unfortunately, they, they're just too busy to hang out at the moment with us. But um, ultimately, we're really happy to have these. We'll be looking forward to have these again in about another month. Make sure to stay up to date with the rest of the Monero community developments. And check out Breaking Monero if you haven't already, which is on the same channel that you're currently watching. On. Or if you're watching on the podcast, it's also on the same podcast. So um, thanks, everyone, for joining us. Uh, Thank you, Justin. I'll see you guys. Take care, everybody. All right. Take it easy.